with you. One of the disadvantages of being here is there's no <laughs> We need a little table here. Okay, so. Right. As most of you can hopefully remember, we've been going through what has been what is commonly referred to as Passion Week. That is the last week of Christ's ministry on earth. Remember, we, we dealt with the, uh, the, um, the anointing in Bethany. Then the next day, Palm Sunday, traveling into Jerusalem. We're going to look at one little incident right at the end of that time when Jesus is in the temple on Palm Sunday. Initially, it's just three little verses. It's in John chapter 12, starting at verse 20, but three little verses. And yet, it starts something happening which is really quite remarkable. So before we go any further, John chapter 12, verse 20, if you turn in your Bibles, let's ask the Lord's blessing on this. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this chance to look into your word. And we pray now that you might open our hearts and minds to what's happening here and to what transpires in our Saviour's life. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, Jesus is in the temple. Now, we say in the temple. We're in the temple. When you, when you go up onto the temple mount, you've... One of the things you're struck with is just how big this place is. It's huge. And when they refer to in the temple, it could be anywhere on top of the temple mount. There were the porches of Solomon on one side where the teaching was done. A lot of the times when they say, uh, you know, he was in the temple teaching, it was in what they called these porches of Solomon over on against one side. There were the main temple buildings with the Holy of Holies and the altars and the, the washing areas. And there were other areas there. So when we say he's in the temple, I want you to get a picture of this very large flat area. In the middle is the proper temple buildings. They're not that big. Uh, and... In the centre of that, of course, is the Holy of Holies, where the, the high priest would only go once a year. Outside that is the main temple area where sacrifices were performed daily. There was a daily sacrifice. There was a monthly sacrifice. There were special sacrifices. People would bring thank offerings to praise God for what they've done, what he's done for them. There would be sin offerings. When someone was, was convicted of their sin, they would bring it. And it would be sacrificed there on the altar. Then outside that was a little was an area which was usually known as the, te the, the the court of the men. This is where the men would gather to worship. Outside that, or extending on from that, is the court of the women, and by extension, the children. Because remember, a boy under thirteen did not go with his father into temple; he stayed with his mother. So this was where the women and children were, were staying. And it's quite possible, and it makes sense, that this was where Jesus was. Why? 
because there were children in the temple singing and praising and saying, Hosanna, blessed is the is the, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So if there were children there, they would be in the court of the women, and that's quite possible, but likely where he was. Remembering that be, even though it was called the court of the women, it wasn't just women. Okay, there would have been men there as well. Outside that is another area which was called the court of Israel, which was open to everybody. It's, it's quite possible that this was an area where people went who possibly um, were not ceremonially clean, who were, you know, they might have touched a body or a dead body or something like that. And so that's as far as they would go into the temple. Outside that, right around the outside, was an area called the court of the Gentiles. That was open to anybody. Anybody could go there. Complete freedom for any person to go there. And what's really interesting is they found an inscription. And the inscription warns Gentiles not to go past this point. It virtually says, Gentiles, if you go past this point, you do so at your own risk. Because those Jews are going to stone you. Uh, and there'll be, you, if you look in Acts, there's inferences about this. So this, but this was an area where Gentiles could go. You think about, ever thought that's a little strange? Gentiles worshiping in the temple. You see, there were there were people who came to the temple and to synagogues who were Gentiles. They they had been attracted by the truth of the Jewish religion, and yet they they hadn't made, if you like, a commitment to become Jewish. I mean, think about it. Who was there? Um, uh, this is <coughs> Passover week. Who would have been there in the temple? Well, we know exactly who was there in the temple. You, you realize that? Because it's, got, it's described to us. In Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost, it describes the group who was there. Acts chapter 2, verse 9, it says, talking about those who heard Peter's sermon at Pentecost, it says, Parthians and Medes and Eliamites and the dwellers in Mesopotamia and in Judea and Cappadocia in Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and the parts of Libya about Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians. That's a mix. That's a mix. Now, the interesting thing that all those people were Jewish. They were the Jews who were there from every country in the Roman Empire. They had come to Passover. So these were the people who were in the temple. It says Jews and proselytes, that is, people who were born Jewish and people who had been converted to Judaism. But there's another group who were there in this area called the Court of the Gentiles. It's interesting Flick over if you're in Acts to Acts chapter 13. Alright? Acts chapter 13, verse 16. 
Paul's giving a, a sermon a bit later on in a synagogue. Now, who would you expect to find in a synagogue? Jews, you would think. be right. But notice who he addresses himself to. Verse 16 of Acts 13. Then Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand said, Men of Israel and ye that fear God, give heed, give audience. You notice that? He's addressing two different groups. He says, ye men of Israel, over here, and you that fear God, over here. These are Gentiles who had come to listen. They hadn't been, they'd, they'd, they'd listened, they'd heard what was being said in the synagogue and the temple, and they'd said, we know this is true. Yet they hadn't made the commitment to become Jews themselves, possibly because they had a good long look at some of the scribes and Pharisees and said, well, if that's Judaism, we don't really want part of that. But at the same time, the truth of the one true God had come through to them and they were going, yeah, there's, there's something, something true here and we're trying to get a grip of it, trying to get a hold of it. So we find... In John chapter 12, verse 20. And there were certain Greeks among them. There were certain Greeks among them. So they would have been in the court of the Gentiles on the Temple Mount. It's interesting. It, there, are, there are certain words which are used to indicate various nationalities. Uh, one of the ones that's used in Greek is, is ethne, where we get the word ethnic from. Ta ethne, the nations, the people. This isn't ethnic. This is specifically Greek. It says these people were Greek, as in from Greece. Uh, it's, it's not just they were Greek speakers or something. It says that they're, they're Greek, Greek people. And they had come up among them. Now, that's another, you know, um, interesting expression there. They were among them. Because the word that's used there for among is actually most frequently translated out of. Among them, but out of them. In other words, these were, these were among them, but not part of them. They were in the crowd, but not part of the crowd, if you see what I'm saying. They were among them, but they weren't of them. They were Greek. And they came to worship at the feast. Now, you know, there's more than one. You think about it again later on. We're, uh, we're going to find that in, in Acts, you'll find the story of the... Um, the Ethiopian eunuch, he would have been in this group, in, in this court of the Gentiles. He had come up to worship at the feast, having been the, the treasurer of Ethiopia. Uh, and he would have been someone like this. He was in the group, but not part of the group. And so they had come up to worship there. In verse 21, the same therefore came to Philip which was of Bethsaida, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. 
Okay, there's a lot there. There's an awful lot there. That word see. There's see as to look. But there's see as to know. You know, when you when someone's explaining something, you go, I see. You know? And this is the sort of see we're talking about here. They didn't just want an introduction. They didn't want Philip to come up and go, ah, uh, Con and, and George, you know, this is Jesus, meet the master. Uh, no, they didn't want an introduction. They wanted to see. This is the same sense as it's used with Zacchaeus, who climbed up to see Jesus, who he was. Right? This is what they're saying. We want to see this Jesus. We want to see and understand and know what he's about. And so they came to Philip. Philip. Why Philip? I mean, who's normally the spokesman of the, the disciples? It's Peter. So why did they come to Philip and ask him? Well, put yourself in their position. You're there in a foreign country, in a strange place, with people from all over the world, really quite some strange groups there. When we read that group that, that was there at, at, at Pentecost, and you want an introduction and you want to understand and you want to listen to the teaching of this prophet, at least, from Nazareth. And you look around and you look at the disciples. Okay, who are we going to ask? Um, Matthew Levi. No, I don't think he's going to become too, too highly recommended. You can't get a much more Jewish name than that. Um Peter the Rock, yeah, he doesn't sound that friendly. How about James and John, who were nicknamed the Sons of Thunder? No, I don't think they sound too, too approachable. How about Simon Zelotes, or as we would say, Simon the Terrorist? That's what it meant to be a zealot. This was a guy who was nicknamed Simon the Terrorist. You're going to go and ask him to, uh, you know, for an introduction? No. And all of a sudden, you see a guy named Philip. It's a good Greek name, Philip. He's been named after the father of Alexander the Great, Philip of Macedon. Macedonian name. And you look at him and you go, yeah, he's a guy who can, we, can, we can communicate with. <coughs> Philip. And so that's why they approached Philip because he had a name that meant something to them. It was, a, it was a, a name that appealed to them. It was a name that they could connect with. Now listen. You are someone's Philip. You are someone that someone can talk to that where they won't talk to anybody else. You are the person that somebody is going to say, yeah, I can, I can approach this person. It might be your name. It might be your gender. 
It might be your life experiences. It might even be the tragedies that you've lived through. But that will mean that someone will talk to you where they will not talk to someone else. You are someone's Philip. Out there, there are people who will not talk about Christianity to anyone else but you. Be aware. Be sensitive that someone out there wants to talk to you and will be coming to you and saying, Sir, I would see Jesus. I would understand what this person is about. But the problem is, Philip, he, he goes, Ah, right. I've got, I've got Jesus up there. I've got these... Greek guys down here, uh, I can't get them up to there because they can't go out of the court of the Gentiles. What do I do? Do I go and ask Jesus to come out of the court where he is worshipping in the temple and come down to meet them? Um, what am I going to do? So what does he do? He gets some advice. And Philip cometh and telleth Andrew. Again, you say to yourself, why Andrew? Andrew is a really, really interesting character. We can, we'll soon understand why Andrew. Andrew is the world's great middleman. Andrew is always in the middle, connecting people. Have a look. In John chapter 1, verse 40. Interesting, you notice back there that uh, it's re he's referred to as Philip, which is of Bethsaida. Okay, John chapter 1, verse 40. <coughs> and it says, one of the two which heard John speak, that is John the Baptist, followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. And the, following, and the day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip and saith unto him, Follow me. Now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, you notice that? Andrew also came from Bethsaida. Why did he go and talk to Andrew? Because you might say that Andrew and Philip were homeboys from the same hood. They knew each other. They'd grown up in the same city. They knew each other but while... We're, when they were under the, the ministry of John the Baptist, they, they knew each other. They were, were friends before any of this all started. <coughs> so he went looking for him. You notice over again in uh, uh, go to John chapter 6, the story of the feeding of the, uh, the 5,000. John chapter 6, verse 5. When Jesus lifted up his eyes, he saw a great company come to him, and he saith unto Philip, 
right? Philip, when shall we buy bread that these may eat? Well, you know why he asked Philip? Because this was close to Bethsaida. They were near, near Philip's hometown. Where, when shall we buy bread that these may eat? This he said to prove him, for he knew what he would, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. And one of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, There is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they amongst so many? Philip and Andrew. Again, together, at Bethsaida. See, there's, so when you, when you see why Philip, well, we understand why Philip, a good Greek name, a good Greek boy, they, could have, they felt they could confide in him. Philip, when he struck a problem, turned to Andrew, his mate from his hometown, And Philip says, Andy, mate, there's no, no two ways about this. We're going to have to go and talk to the boss about this. You're going to have to tell the master because you know, this is way past our pay grade. We're, we're, we're out of our depth here. We'll go and tell Jesus about it and get his direction on what we're going to do. Uh, is he going to get them to move? Is he going to move? What, you know, what are we going to do here? So Andrew and Philip go up and they tell Jesus. Now, we don't, it's not recorded what exactly they said. It's not recorded exactly what, what, what they said to, to Jesus. And, and did they simply go up and say, Master, there's some Greeks who would like to see you. Was it as simple as that? Um, you know, uh, possibly it was. You know, they just went up. Excuse me, Master, there's some guys down there who want to talk to you. Jesus then stops. He stops whatever he's doing and something really interesting happens. <coughs> he preaches a, a little sermon. There's a little miracle. Well, a big miracle, really, because there are no little miracles. And some of the most profound and important statements about Jesus' ministry come out. And it resulted because a bunch of Greek guys wanted to see and understand Christ. And they went to the one person they felt they could trust, who then confided in his best mate, and they said, we'll take this to the master. Such a simple little thing. But these important statements of Jesus about his ministry turn on this little incident like a, a giant door turning on a little tiny jeweled hinge. <coughs> now, Jesus had dealt with individual Gentiles before. You mightn't think about this, but he had. The Roman centurion whose, whose servant was sick. The woman, the Syrophoenician woman. So he had, 
uh, he, he dealt with Samaritans, he dealt with Gentiles on an individual basis before. But this is the only time we see a group of them, a group of Gentiles coming to, to Christ. <coughs> and in fact, what he begins to do here is detail how salvation will come to all Gentiles. To every Gentile, that's us. I don't think we've got any Jewish people here, but uh, to all of us, he begins to detail how salvation will come to the Gentiles. And he does it prompted by these small groups. Now, that salvation was going to come to the Gentiles is not a new doctrine. Not new. For instance, if you have a look over in in uh, Psalm, Psalm 22.27, Psalm 22.27, it says, All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord, and all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. Clearly. In Psalms, they will prophesy that all the kindreds of the nation, all the Gentiles, shall turn and worship the Lord. Now, it doesn't say that all the kindreds of the nations will become Jewish. It doesn't say that. It, it's, it's more than just where it says that all the nations will serve God as he will rule them as a king. It says they will worship him. So there was very clear from the Old Testament that the Gentiles one day were going to be saved. It was just how was this going to happen that people in the Old Testament could not understand? How was it going to work? How was it going to operate? And that's why they said that the church was a mystery to them. It was something that God had hidden and would reveal in due time how this would all come about. And so he begins to, to explain what happens. And the first thing he says is, in verse 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. <coughs> this is by extension to us. But its primary application, interestingly, is in fact to Christ himself. Its first point of application is to our Saviour. That unless he died, he remained alone. But by dying, he, bring, he brought forth much fruit. It's true of us, but it was more importantly, it's true of him. That without the death of Christ, there was no fruit to his ministry. For if he had gone into heaven without dying, where was the salvation for us? He would have had a ministry and it would have remained alone. 
By extension, it applies to us that we must die to ourselves before we can become fruitful. That we must not love our life or we will indeed lose it. Verse 27 is, is so interesting and, and so intriguing. For he says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. For, for, because for this cause came I to this hour. We think of, of Christ's prayer in Gethsemane when he sweated and said, Father, if, if this cup can pass from me, that's what I'd rather do. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. But the troubling of his soul is starting here. A week beforehand, his soul is heavy and troubled because he knows what's coming. But he also knows that this was the whole reason for his coming to earth. And it's beginning to weigh heavily on his soul. We do not, sometimes I think we do not understand or, or grasp the weight that was pressing down on the soul of our Saviour in the days coming up to the, to the crucifixion and the days coming up to his betrayal. The weight, it says, my soul is troubled. I don't like this, he's going. I don't want this, but it's so necessary for your sake. And then he says, Father, glorify thy name. And there came a voice from heaven. You know, there, there would come a time when the Father would turn his face away from the Son. But at this time he says, no. He gives his Son comfort an affirmation and says, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The, the Father at this time reaches down, in fact, to comfort the Son. It's, it's an amazing situation. In the middle of the temple, God speaks audibly to His Son. This is, this is staggering. And it all started because some Greek guys came and said to a boy with a Greek name, we would like to see and understand Jesus. And God himself speaks from heaven. Well, some people heard it and said uh, it was thunder. Other people heard it and said, oh, no, it was, it was an angel talking. But we know, and John knew, because John was there, that God himself answered. Jesus answered and said, this, this voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the prince of this world cast out. He's saying, this is the accumulation. This is the focal point of everything we've done for the last three years is right now and happening in this time in Jerusalem. 
Everything we've done before is just lead up. Everything that's happened before is just prologue. This is where it's all happening. And he says one of the most amazing statements here, verse 32. And if and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. Now, I won't go into that in a bit of detail. First of all, he says, if I, if I, not anyone else, if I am lifted up. The centrality of Jesus is being put here. Remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, the cloud overshadowed Moses and Elijah and they saw Jesus only. There is no other. In Acts chapter 4 verse 12 we are told, For there is no other name given amongst men whereby we may be saved. We are told that in all things he must have the preeminence. Why? Because it says, if I am lifted up. There is a centrality to Christ which we cannot overestimate. And a message for preachers, you preach the Father too much, you'll end up a bit legalistic. You preach the Spirit too much, you'll end up a bit experiential. If you preach the Son, you'll always have a balance in your ministry. He says, if I am lifted up, if I am lifted up. It's all about Him. We must never ever forget it's all about Jesus. Now I'm not one of those who, who you know, will say, oh, we can only preach about uh, Jesus. You can only, um, you know, work out of the New Testament. There's the whole Bible to work out. But you will find that if you work out of the whole Bible, it's His story in there. It is the story of Christ that is central to the whole point and understanding of the scriptures. He says, if I am lifted up, no one else is possible. Why? Because no one else could do what he did in being lifted up. It was him and him alone who could save. If I am lifted up, not anyone else, no saint, no Mary, no one. It's got to be Jesus, for nothing else will suffice. And he says, if I, if I be lifted up. Now he said this signifying the death he would die. He's not, you know, some people will preach on this saying that we must just exalt the name of Christ. Well, it's true, but it's not the point he's making. He says, signifying the death he should die. If I be lifted up. As in, if I be lifted up on a cross, if I suffer, if I die, these things will happen. And if I don't suffer and I don't die, these things will not happen. We, we learn later on that, that Jesus himself says that Christ needs, must have suffered. It had to happen this way. When the very first post-resurrection exposition of the scriptures is given by Jesus on the, the road to Emmaus, he explains how absolutely central the crucifixion was 
to the understanding of salvation. Jesus says, if I be lifted up, a bloodless Christ is a sham and a fake. A bloodless Christianity is powerless. We sing it, don't we? What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. If we do not sing it and we do not preach it, we have misunderstood and stolen from his message because he says, if I be lifted up, the crucified Christ is absolutely central to Christianity. The Christianity that will show the world a gentle Jesus, meek and mild, it will show a teacher that will show a merciful healer that will show a teacher and a provider and a blesser but will not show a crucified Christ is robbing people of the truth of the gospel. But Jesus says, if I be lifted up, if he's not lifted up, there is no power. If he's not lifted up, there is no future. If he's not lifted up, there is no strength in Christianity to save souls. And he says, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw. I like this. I will draw. Now we think of drawing as enticing. Drawing as bringing along. Drawing as attracting. No, 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 no. Wrong word for draw. This is the concept of someone getting a couple of yoke of oxen and some good strong chains and wrapping them around something and dragging them in. That's the sort of drawing we're talking about. It's drawing like a drawbar. It's not drawing like, oh, I'll persuade people and I'll gently bring them along. No, this is drawing in the power of Christ. The calling power of the grace of God and the blood of Christ when simply preached and plainly stated has no limits. And we may not see it when it happens. But the power that it has here is just so large. We are told that Jesus says at the end of time, not one of his will be lost. Not one. That's the drawing power of the blood of Christ. If he is preached, lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to me. Drawing them. I have, it's almost like a mental image of people being dragged through the pearly great gates, kicking and complaining, but the power of Christ will draw them. There is a doctrine called irresistible grace, which sounds like a contradiction in terms, but it is such a wonderful thing. That God's power to call men to salvation is irresistible. He says, I will draw them. 
You know why it's great a great doctrine? Because <coughs> it gives a great confidence to a preacher to know that it's not dependent on fancy words or eloquent speech or clever arguments. No, it is the drawing power of the Son of God if He is preached, lifted up from the earth, crucified for sinners. It's going to draw men. It is a promise from the almighty power of the God of the universe that there is power in the blood of Christ when preached simply and plainly that people just can't resist it. If And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to me. He will draw all of them. Listen, if you want... If you want a little education in a nice piece of English poetry and something to, to get a grip in your soul, <laughs> go and read The Hound of Heaven. A marvellous poem. I was, I was reading it last night. I fled him down the nights and days. I fled him down the endless ways. I fled him from... I hid beneath my tears and beneath the laughter, but still he came. God is chasing people down. You know, we think of it sometimes that we've got to go out and bring them in. Yes, we do. But believe me, as we're calling them in, the hound of heaven is on their tails and chasing them towards him. Have you heard it in the night? behind you chasing you down is the hound of heaven on your tail tonight today has he been pursuing you down the nights and days have you been hiding from God beneath laughter and tears beneath the world's cares and pleasures have you been hiding from the one who has been chasing you because he says if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Has he been drawing you closer and closer to you, to, to him, and you've been kicking and screaming and complaining and not wanting to yield to what he's doing? He's remember, he's not drawing you to this church. He's not drawing you to this denomination. He's not even drawing you to this preacher. He's drawing you to himself. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. God is jealous of his glory. He will not give it to another. And notice that it says, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me, to him, to Christ. It is always that we should direct our preaching to draw people to Christ. For no one else will suffice. There is no other prince, priest, pope or potentate that is worthy of our service and our allegiance. Jesus is drawing all men 
to him. For this cause he came into the world. For this cause he spent three years training those disciples. For this cause he suffered and died. That he might draw all men unto him. I asked before, has the hound of heaven been on your tail? Have you been fleeing away from Jesus Christ? He is drawing you to himself. Are you going to listen? Or are you going to continue to resist? In a few moments, we're going to stand up. We're going to sing a hymn. You're going to stand there with your hands clenched around the, the hymn book and your knuckles going white because you're refusing to accept what he's already said to you. Are you refusing to accept the calling of him? He has been lifted up from the earth on a cross to draw you to himself. Is he drawing you now? Is he calling you now? Is he calling you to repent from your sin, to turn from the prince of this world and come to him? God will be glorified. He'll be glorified in your salvation. He'll be glorified in your condemnation. He's calling you. He's chasing you. He wants you desperately. He loves you so much that there was nothing else he could do. Is there anything more God could have done to reach you? Is there anything more that Christ could have done to communicate to you? God wrote you a book to let you know how much he loves you. He sent you his son to die for your sins. Is there anything else he could have done? He brought you to this place at this time to hear this message. What more? Could he have done? How much more could he have reached out to you than what he has done already? There is no excuse. There is no reason to say, well, God hasn't asked me personally. What more do you want him to do? To communicate how much he loves you and how much he desperately wants to be part of your life. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. He's drawing. He's reaching. He's wanting to see you with him today. This day. This is the day that Jesus wants you to be saved. This is the time that he wants you to repent. And this amazing message started because a couple of Greek boys turned to a guy who had a name that sounded familiar and said, Sir, we would see Jesus. We would understand this man. We would know what the message is. And Jesus responded with the message saying, 
I'm going to be lifted up and I will draw all men to me. That's the message. That's the message he gave to those, those men 2,000 years ago. It's a message he gives to you today. He has been lifted up on a cross to draw you to himself. Why, why, why wait any longer? The message is open. The invitation is clear. If you need to talk to someone about your soul today, when this service is over, you come up to me, or you come up to pastor, or you come up to someone who you trust, someone who's your Philip, someone who you can respond to, someone who you can talk to and say, Sir, I would see Jesus. And that will be the greatest pleasure that you could ever know is to introduce someone to the master. Today, if he's been calling you, respond and meet the Saviour. Thank you.